0: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic shoes at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014
1: Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. A little bit of thank you before we start the episode. Late last year, Karen talked me into adding Patreon to Monster Talk as a way of letting listeners show support for the show. At the time, I wasn't sure I wanted to even bother with it because I was concerned about it turning what's a labor of love into a business. Not that there's anything wrong with business. I'm definitely in favor of being paid for one's work. But I wanted the show to be free, and I'm one of those people who gets annoyed by commercials. But we put in the Patreon account, and people actually started to support us with tips and recurring donations. And it's a really nifty system. I like it. But I was thinking it was going to be for coffee money or maybe to buy a book or DVD here and there. And And it turns out that over the past two months... Both Karen and I have had uh, some very interesting challenges in our life and it turns out that the support of those Patreon donations seriously helped make that a little less painful. We are grateful for those donations and I'm not using this to beg for everybody to sign up for it. I just wanted to say thank you very clearly and sincerely to the people who donated to us because we both appreciate your support for the show and you helped make Karen and my life a little bit easier with your generosity especially over here at Team Smith Headquarters. okay, From here on out, it'll be nice and lighthearted for the rest of the show. Uh, wait. Actually, we're going to be talking about animal mutilations and horrible, disgusting stuff to do with monsters and dead livestock. Huh. Do you still call it livestock if it's dead? Is that an oxymoron? Oh, is it an oxymoron?
0: It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
1: A giant, hairy creature,
0: part ape, part man.
1: Monster Talk Talk is the science show about monsters. In this episode, we'll be talking to Colin Schneider, a.k.a. the Crypto Kid, who I met recently at CryptidCon, in Kentucky. Hopefully, we'll be having some more interviews with people I met there and get some good classic cryptid monster content. But as I mentioned in a recent episode, I'm also anxious to work on my series on magic, and we'll be getting that going in our next two episodes as we tackle grimoires. But for now... It's time for some good, old, classic monster talk. Colin Schneider is one of the youngest active 40 and cryptozoology researchers in the United States. He's now 17 years old, but he's been doing this, what, since you were 16? Uh, since I was 11. Since you were 11, so quite a few years. And he's been involved in cryptozoology and ufology since he was 13, after he visited the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, uh, salute there to uh, uh, Lauren, my, Coleman. Lauren Coleman. Oh, my God. Lauren, I'm so sorry. I'm going to uh, edit that out because I just had a brain fart. <laughs> Colin, here's another piece of advice. Never turn 40. It's all downhill after that. So, <laughs> a, a frequent attendee of conferences that about the Unexplained Colin lectures at numerous events around the Ohio and Pennsylvania area. He's also a regional representative for the Center for Vordian Zoology and the host of the Crypto Kid Radio Show on WCJV, Digital Broadcasting Network. And You can listen to that on Monday nights. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And before we actually started this interview, you mentioned that you were working with the CFZ to increase teen outreach. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But I'm going to let Karen kick off the questions while I try to recover my ability to
2: speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Colin. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a goal of mine to come on the show for a while.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. And we're just very curious to find out how you got interested in this field at such a young age. Uh,
2: I... Every interview I do about this, I always kind of have a different answer. And it's a whole bunch of things. Um, Goosebumps, uh, the book series by R.L. Stein, was definitely a big influence in my interest in this stuff. And um, But directly, the first thing I really heard about cryptozoology from was Monster Quest, uh, History Channel's show about. Oh, gosh, it's almost 10 years ago now that it started airing.
1: Yeah, it slightly predates our show because it was definitely an inspiration. Yeah.
2: The first episode I ever saw was on the Ohio Grassman. And it terrified me because they portrayed these, this Bigfoot creature as being hyper aggressive. And it was literally in my own backyard. Because I live in Ohio, so it was like and you an grass, eight-year-old, right? <laughs> <laughs> and an eight, an eight-year-old watching this thing about this giant ape creature that that, um, according to old newspaper stories, literally ripped a person off of a, uh, uh, um, off of his horse and and killed him. Like that's not. That that's scary and yeah. so because it was scary it interested me and I just started looking more and more into this stuff and uh every episode pretty much had Lauren Coleman on it it did wearing and, the same
1: shirt <laughs> so <it was> like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean I'm joking but I, I yeah, exactly they actually I, I've talked to him about that they, they brought him up for like one day and then filmed like everything right
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's how it looks Lauren always seemed like just this Very knowledgeable, grandfatherly figure that um, I don't know. I just was, I I just kind of idolized him as a kid, and I bought almost all of his books as soon as I could, as soon as I got the money. And um, as as you mentioned at the beginning, I got a chance when I was thirteen to go to the International Cryptozoology Museum, and I remember walking out after meeting him and buying every book in the gift shop uh, with walking out with a stack of books. And um, all of my vacation money spent before we even got to the place where we were actually staying, thinking, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to be a monster hunter. I want to look for these things. And I haven't looked back since. That's neat.
1: You know, Fantastic. I actually we, – we were just doing um, a, a multi-part episode on the uh, uh, Kentucky uh, Goblins case, the, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins. And in that – uh, document, which was by uh, uh, Blecker and Davis, or Davis and Blecker, uh, they mention uh, Lauren Coleman as, as part of uh, the, some of the research. I think we were just talking about the Evansville uh, sort of uh, fish man attack. And, and I, I thought, my gosh, Lauren's been around forever. I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's really managed to take up that role of sort of, uh, he took the torch sort of from John Keel uh, maybe from Ivan Sanderson, you know, that sort well, of...
2: He uh, was around during John Keel's... And, and, and,
1: and, yeah, and I think he... I want to believe, if I remember correctly, that he was actually, uh, uh, like, helping out Sanderson, maybe, at one point, uh, mm-hmm. I think... Uh,
2: Sanderson and Hoovelman's and, uh, Coleman all had, uh... Um, they they sent letters to each other. They were um, they worked together on different projects. Yeah. Uh, I remember in several books, uh, Lauren said that Sanderson called him his man in the West.
1: That's nice. Uh, but it's <laughs> fun because we we kind of end up doing the same sort of thing now. We typically do it through uh, email and you know right. Facebook groups and other things. But it is really fun to collaborate on research across the country or across the world. Um, I mean, I think one of my first collaborative projects was done with Kylie Sturgis and she was in Australia and I was in, actually I was in Colorado at the time we were working on it. I was at the uh, Stanley Hotel. So I was in the Stanley Hotel researching a ghost case and Kylie was on the ground doing field work for me. It was awesome. Or with me. I shouldn't say for mm-hmm. me. We were just it was It was nice cooperation across the world. So I, I I love it. I love collaboration. And I, I think that's great that it's existed all this time. So
0: Yeah, it helps you to, I think, uh, just take on different perspectives. And if you just work on something yourself, uh, you can get a bit of tunnel vision.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. also helps to uh, be that voice of sanity if you're going down a rabbit hole.
0: So, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Unless you intend to be going down a rabbit hole. So, yeah, that's
2: <laughs> slightly so different. So do you
0: work by yourself, Colin, or do you work with a team of others or colleagues?
2: Um. I work pretty closely with a couple different people. Um, and I am any more, I'm one of the major movers and shakers in the uh, Center for Fordian Zoology, uh, which is the largest cryptozoological organization in the world, um, which I will continue to flaunt because I love the group and I think that not only are we the biggest, but we're the best. Um, and uh, w- working with John Downs, who is the director, um, has just been amazing. He was, along with Coleman, one of my childhood heroes. And now I talk to him basically every day, um and not just about cryptozoology, but we've become friends. And we just chat about you know Star Trek and life and universe and everything. And it's just absolutely amazing to me that someone that I grew up watching, that influenced, uh, how I think about things and wh- how I look at things and uh, where my life has gone can be a close friend of mine, and uh, that's honestly one of the reasons that I do this, uh, as well as my love for the subject, is because I get to work with people that I've lived my entire life looking up to.
1: Was it was it difficult to um, to get involved with them? Did you feel like you had? Challenges? Oh no! no even with your young age, it wasn't a problem.
2: John is one of the few major cryptozoologists in the field that is like anyone can go up to him about anything and he will immediately like pay attention to you and only you um and discuss whatever you need um i remember when i first got involved i was uh with the cfc i was about 14 and uh i was really nervous when i first um asked him a question because i was because um for the longest time, I was just working with the guy in charge of the uh, U.S. division, which is a guy named uh, Ronan Colin, um, who lives in Ireland. That's and a cool uh, <laughs> he, he He's a very nice guy, but he's very professional. And um, I'm not – I mean I am professional, but I also like to joke around about things. Sure. And I was, I was worried that uh, when I contacted John about uh, something or other – I don't even remember what it was. Um, I was worried that uh, just – that type of thing would uh, get him to be a little stand- standoffish, and I didn't want it to be like that. But um, I sent him a message on Facebook, because uh, that's honestly the easiest way to get in touch with him. And he immediately replied back, um, and we just started chatting. And within six months, he started pushing me to uh, write an article for the journal. And uh, it, it was the easiest thing in the world to get involved with the CFC, to be honest. Um you join and uh someone will get in touch with you ask if you just are interested in learning or do you want to work with people and work on um, on research and if you do you some the people that work in the CFC are honestly some of the nicest people I've ever worked with in this field I've worked with quite a few
1: That's great mm-hmm. <laughs> Um So what sort of things are you working on? I mean, I know a little bit about what you've worked on because of your presentation at a CryptidCon. But uh, like just what's day in the life of a a, a, 40N slash cryptozoology researcher like for you?
2: Well, um, I really have three major things I do um, on a monthly basis. Uh, I'm working on a book concerning uh, the topic for my lecture at uh, CryptidCon, which is um, looking at cryptid attacks on livestock um, because there's a lot of weird aspects to it and something that's not really discussed much. And that takes up a lot of my time. Uh, the other One of the other major projects that I've been working on is uh, I've been working with the CFZ um, on something we call the Next Generation Initiative. And it's kind of like an outreach program and a community for uh, young cryptozoologists or young people interested in working in cryptozoology to kind of help them along and uh, have a community where they can work with other people their age to really learn and become better researchers. This is it something that doesn't really exist? And there are quite a few of us around. Um, we're just not out there and doing much because it is really difficult to get into that position um and then the final thing that i do is uh work on kind of branding myself (laughs) if you will um and that that really just covers uh doing lectures um writing articles i've been published 15 times now 16 times um, and then uh, just doing my radio show once so, a week.
1: So, so you know,
2: humble self promotion. <laughs> well, I,
1: I think it's important.
2: No, I, I it is. No, no, look, I, I'm
1: a guy with a podcast. Of course, it's important, it's critical. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, especially for a young person to you know, be able to say, well, I've been published. Um, I do this, this, and this. Um, I I reach out and I do things. Um, because there are a lot of young researchers that um are doing some phenomenal work, but they aren't public about it and they they aren't visible about it. They they aren't seen, so they're not thought of. And it can be really difficult, even though you may have some of the greatest research around, it can be really difficult to break into the field um, if you aren't, from the beginning, working on getting published and, and building those connections.
1: I, I, that's actually really a, a really good point. I, I think we've actually talked about this on a few episodes where um, this, one of the differences between uh, sort of mainstream scientific research and cryptozoological research is among amateurs, there's a tendency to try to hoard knowledge rather than share it. And that means that people duplicate the same work, trying to find the same information. And it means that people can't build on the work that other people have done very easily. So uh, I think anything that CFZ does to sort of promote that sharing through journal publishing, um, also uh, just to build that uh, network of people willing to do the work is a good idea. I, You know, I, I have that problem where I'm a, I'm a fan of the field, but Obviously, also critical of it and and because there are a lot of people out there who just sort of do the sort of echo-chambery repeating of stories without actually digging in to find out what's going on. So when I saw your presentation uh, at at Crypticon, I knew we wanted to talk to you because you had done such hard work and really what seemed to be rock-solid research into the topic that you were looking at. Uh,
2: What is the topic? What was the topic of your talk um, it was uh, called Bloodsucking Beasties and Shadowy Stalkers, and it was looking <laughs> at uh, cryptid attacks on livestock, but from the viewpoint of like purported vampiric attacks. Um,
1: okay. Right, and it ex- extended far beyond just like uh, cattle mutilations, for example. Right, mm-hmm. right or so.
2: or the chupacabra. I only talked so, about the I- chupacabra for maybe 10 minutes. Right, right. So
1: do you want to talk a little bit about what you found?
2: Yeah, Um. so the first thing that I heard about um, besides the chupacabra with this, um, was what's known as the Vampire Beast of Bladenborough or the uh, Bladenborough Cat. And it's sort of one of those underground stories that a lot of researchers seem to be familiar with, but nobody's done a lot of like uh, investigation to what actually happened. And so it interested me because I love vampires and I love the idea of a vampire cat because it's just fun. Um, And what happened was in December of 1953 through January 1954, this small town of Bladenboro, North Carolina had uh, this rash of violent attacks on uh, dogs, um, poultry, cats, um, sheep, a handful of other livestock, um, as well as a rash of what were said to be Black Panther attacks, Black Panther sightings. And, uh, the whole town panicked, uh, over a thousand hunters, uh, over the course of a couple weeks started going into the swamps and the forests around the town, um, with brandishing, not just guns, but clubs and big sticks and whatever they could grab because they were, um, panicking about these animals because they were worried that they were going to attack a child or, um, someone else. Uh, and, they they actually at one point outnumbered the town. Uh, there were so many hunters from other states and around just the state of North Carolina that were flocking to this town. And so that level of mass hysteria fascinated me and I wanted to know more. Um, I have um, mostly – as complete as I can get of a timeline of newspaper articles about this uh, creature – and what's really interesting is, uh, except for two examples, there were, there was no real sighting of the Black Panther things around the kills. Um, the only examples where that happened was, uh, on January 8th, a woman, uh, A woman uh, was looking at the sunset on her porch and uh, her dog got attacked by the large cat like creature and she said when she tried to shoo it away uh, it ran after her Um, her husband came out with his gun and the creature just took off but um, besides that there were only kind of glimpses of a strange looking beast uh, in the outskirts when people discovered the animals that were killed Now, the reason that people thought it was a uh, vampire cat was because um, all of the animals that were actually killed were killed in more or less the same way. It it was pretty gruesome. They were – their skulls were said to be crushed. Their um, jaws were ripped open. Um, Some of them had their tongues removed. Others didn't – the animals were slashed on their sides. And, of course, they were said to be drained of blood. Uh, Sometimes there were puncture wounds on their neck. Sometimes there weren't. It it would depend on the state of the animal at the time, whether or not there were, uh, you know, uh, slash marks on the neck to be able to determine if there were puncture wounds there. And um, no one actually – there were no actual autopsies of the animal's. To determine whether or not they were actually drained of blood it was just said that they were because they couldn't find any blood around the animals so it was just assumed that it was a vampire creature attacking them um Bladenboro is uh, a really interesting little town Uh, they uh, actually hold a Bladenboro beast festival every year and I've been wanting to go down for a couple years I just haven't had a chance but uh, what's interesting is unlike places like Point Pleasant that with the Mothman Festival or uh, Van Meter with the uh, Van Meter Visitor Festival, Bladenboro's festival uh, actually uses the creature to fund their band program for the high school, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, and the Bladenboro case it has a lot of tropes that are seen in other cases um, of these Creature attacks that uh, I really just kind of stumbled onto more of them and I decided, hey, this would make a pretty good book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about some of those tropes of some of the things that you see? I want
0: to... Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. go ahead, Karen. I just wanted to ask a specific question about the uh, the panther sightings because uh, I'm from Australia originally and we have a lot of those sightings there, big cat sightings mm. and, and claims. And uh, just in regards to the the origins of these claims, they're, they're not native creatures to Australia, but there are these different uh, urban legends about how they came to Australia. Some say that they escaped from a zoo, and uh, other claims are that they were brought to Australia by U.S. servicemen during World War II. So I'm just wondering if you've got the same kind of theme going here, either for the Bladenburg uh, claims or for elsewhere. If you have different urban legends about the origins of these panthers and big cats,
2: not really. The area where most of these attacks are is is the uh, that I've that I found at least is the eastern side of the United States kind of the Mississippi's, kind of the dividing line here. And after, uh, East of the Mississippi, that's where most of these attacks are. Mm-hmm. And, um, when they're associated with, um, Panthers, uh, generally they're said to be mad Panthers, mad mountain lions. And despite the fact that they're said to be extinct, um, pretty much anyone you talk to, um, In these areas um, where I live, uh, down in North Carolina, even up in Maine, uh, will tell you that they're still here. Um, Now, I'm not making a claim that they are, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's very much a part of the rural culture that mountain lions are here. The government doesn't want to admit it. (laughs) <laughs>
1: right. No, that's, that's true. and I, I mean, the, the those stories that are out there, and there's, that, there's always that government cover-up angle. I, I hear that over mm-hmm. and over again in these online stories and in, 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 in uh, various places where I hear them on, whether it's coast-to-coast or different people calling in and telling stories. It's um, that, that angle that the government's trying to suppress it. They don't want us to know about these animals. I, I find that so interesting, like why there's that sort of conspiratorial anti-big government angle going on with it.
2: Bladenborough. Um, No one ever actually, as far as I could tell, made a claim that it was a mountain lion, but panther is synonymous with mountain lion in the area. Uh, So just by calling it a panther, they kind of did say it might have been, but there were three or four bobcats that were killed in the area during the panic. And actually, there was an animal, a strange spotted cat that some speculated was an ocelot that was actually hit by a car at that same time. And I've been trying to track down whatever happened to it, but I haven't found a single thing concerning it. Uh, Also, there was an unusually large dog named Big Boy that uh, apparently escaped a week before the attack started happening. And uh, Zeke Stanton, the, uh, local who owned big boy said that he fed the dog on nothing but blood and scraps from the local slaughterhouse. And he said that it developed a taste for it. So, uh, that was also one of the explanations that was being passed around. So
1: what, what year was this again?
2: Uh, December of 1953 through January, 1954.
1: Back to, um, the exsanguination part of things in your talk, you mentioned some things that I think are not said often enough about some of the reasons why uh, an animal that's found dead on a farm might
2: seem to have been drained of blood, but might not be. Could you talk about that a little? I want to preface this by uh, saying that I have done extensive research into um what happens when an animal dies to the blood and um, the the attack methods of these animals, uh, of uh, known animals. So uh, d- even though I'm not a zoologist, um, I, I have done the research and I can back it up with um, credible sources. So when something dies, um, the heart stops pumping, the blood thickens, And uh, gravity takes over and kind of pulls the blood at the bottom of the body where the center of gravity is. And this process is called lividity. And what happens is, uh, even if you like pick up the animal and move it around or, uh, you know, even cut into the animal, you probably won't find blood because it's all pulled into uh, one area. And um, I've read several um, interviews with. with um, veterinarians talking about this, saying how it can be incredibly difficult to um, actually determine whether or not an animal has been exsanguinated. Um, so, it, even if uh, you're you know you're an experienced um, hunter or farmer or police officer, like most of the uh, people who look at these animals are, they. Would not be able to tell whether or not the animal has actually been drained of blood. Another, uh, another factor that does contribute to the idea of these animals being, uh, the, these creatures being vampiric, is uh, many of these animals that will go out and kill livestock, uh, domestic dogs, um, wild dogs, um, pretty much any kind of cat on the planet, uh, and a handful of others, uh, most of them will attack the throat. And, uh, there's a process, there's a, um, behavior called surplus killing in which a coyote or a wolf or most carnivores will, um, start attacking animals when there's, um, a high number of them and they will just kill and kill and kill until the entire group is gone. And generally when these animals attack, they just get them in the throat, um, and then move on. And, I've talked I live right across from a farm, and doing research for my book, I uh, went over there um because I was curious. I wanted to know if uh, the, just the average farmer knows about some of these things. And even though we have coyotes in the area and I constantly hear about coyotes attacking the animals, he was not familiar with lividity or surplus killing because it is uh, surplus killing is a rarer occurrence but when it does happen it can be devastating um i know of an example where a pack of wolves of like three or four um slaughtered over 300 elk in uh, just a handful of hours wow Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy
1: listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod Pod and Wagon.
2: Yeah. Um, it's okay. It, in some of these cases, there's a case in. Th- 77 uh by Salem Ohio where 134 sheep were killed and uh by an an unseen animal uh just by a bite on the throat um in a single night
1: oh my god and it must have been really difficult to count them i mean people kept falling asleep while trying to get the number <laughs> 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 Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, but that is. It, I, I you actually hit on something I, I really think is is uh, under uh, not underreported. I'm not sure what the right word is. The fact is that you can become a farmer. There's not like a high barrier to entry from an educational perspective, and there's nothing in farming training that's really all about you know. Here's what happens to your livestock after it dies. You know, keeping it alive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty common. But I don't think people really understand what happens when animals die. And there's a huge... Not the average person, certainly. Right, right. It's just, I mean, that's not your goal. I mean, your goal is to keep the animals alive, help them reproduce, get them to market or whatever it is. Uh, and, and there's just a, a lot of ignorance out there about what happens after animals die. And I see this again and again where relatively mundane, normal, post-mortem things happen to creatures. And it completely confounds the general public. Um, well, you, we talk about that uh, on uh, things like the Montauk Monster, where you have a, a mundane animal soaking in water, gets washed up on the shore, and it looks weird because the hair is off of it. So, a hairless animal suddenly it's a monster. No, not really, but to the general public, it looks unusual. You know, animals that are starved. You know, animals that are deformed. There, there's there's all kinds of really mundane things that happen that can transform something completely normal or within the spectrum of normal into something quite mysterious and it's really i think once people have embraced a sort of paranormal or unusual explanation it's hard to talk them down from that you know if someone's convinced that that, that there's a blood-sucking monster killing their livestock it's hard to convince them no your livestock's dying but it's something
2: normal you know Mm -hmm. i think that part of the um reason that uh, not many people know about uh, what happens after animals die is because the topic is kind of taboo it, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of gory and gross, and not a lot of people are comfortable bringing it up. I'm a little uh, I'm a little disturbed, so I think it's interesting um. But I do – when I do talk about uh, these things, I do have to preface it during my talks that it can be a little gross, and I always try to dial it back. Right,
1: (laughs) right. Even –
0: even when it comes to food just the we're so far removed from the way that animals are killed and our food sources and uh you know people used to butcher animals on their farms and uh and just make use of all of the different parts of the animals and nowadays everything's wrapped up in cling wrap in a supermarket and uh so we, we certainly don't know about how animals are killed how they die uh and what becomes of them it's uh, yeah. not something people want to know about nowadays. Well, and
1: and I think Karen, you're a or at least you have been a vegetarian, right? I don't know if you still I are. I
0: grew up vegetarian. My my mother is uh, vegetarian and so I've had periods of my life of being vegan, vegetarian. Right now I'm pescatarian, so I eat seafood but not other different that, kinds of meat. That's
1: that's like anglican, right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Episcopalian. <laughs> it sounds religious.
1: <laughs> it really does. The uh I I uh, I come from a family where, like, both of my sisters are vegetarian, and um, oh,
0: really, oh yeah, in Georgia,
1: in <laughs> Georgia. And, but my family uh, has been farmers, ranchers, uh, and so I've, I grew up around the farm. I helped process animals, uh, and I'm I'm definitely a carnivore, although I've experimented with vegetarianism. Um, so I know I I'm know ca- <laughs> I'm capable of doing it. It's not my thing, but. Uh, like John Cleese Deep-fried said, if, okra and- if the Lord didn't <laughs> want us to eat animals, why did he make them out of meat? I don't know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the reason I say it is the, um, uh, there, there are, in fact, I guess we'll probably have to slap a uh, explicit label on this episode because we're going to talk about gross stuff. But a lot of the things that happen in, in some of these uh, animal predations where, where uh, a farmer comes upon his uh, cow or his sheep and... Uh, mysterious things have happened to it. The, I'm thinking about the cattle mutilation cases. They always talk about the anus being cored out, or the the, the uh, genitalia being removed, the eyeballs being removed. You know, like laser precision cuts, that sort of thing. Yeah. These are all <laughs> the sort of things that happen during normal attacks by predators. That they they go for the easy entry. Animal hides tough. It's hard to get in there. With the peculiar exception of rabbits, I think generally speaking, it's hard to skin an animal. I don't know why rabbits come up, obviously, <laughs> but they do. Um, but but yeah, so eating like animals will eat out the rectum of a, of a kill, and they'll tear off the genitalia, and then that'll dry out in the sun, or you know different things will tighten it and stretch it as the animal gets distended by uh, the gases expanding inside its body. They can change the shape of the wounds. There's lots of things that happen that are completely nasty to discuss. But which can lead to uh, a really peculiar interpretations by
2: people. Uh, I, I'm I'm really glad you brought up cattle mutilation. I thought you were because... going to say
1: rectums being eaten out because I thought <laughs> no, <laughs> gross. <laughs> That's really disgusting. What's wrong with
2: us? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, um, doing research on this topic um, and being very public about what I'm doing because uh, partially because I want to get some more recent um, attacks. From uh, people because uh, I don't have any almost all of the um, stuff that I have in my book that I'm working on right now is from uh, newspapers or police reports or those type of uh, first um, firsthand stories that uh, do have a lot of flaws in them. Uh, They don't always cover the right thing. They don't always have accompanying pictures. It can be really hard to determine what attacked these animals just from the vague descriptions in the newspaper. But um, people bring up cattle mutilations all the time. And uh, it's something I'm very adamant about not being connected. Because uh, just because it's weird doesn't mean that it has to be connected to this other weird thing. Um, And in fact... They don't really have a lot of similarities besides an animal being dead. Um, a lot of the times, uh, the reason the, uh, cre- the that creatures are being um, blamed is because they're either seen in the area at the same time, or there are clear signs of predation, um, flat out that anyone can tell, like they're, they're bite marks um, instead of you know the 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 um, uh, apparent surgical. Um, cuts. Also, what what really does make these uh, appear to be weird is just the high level of animals that have been killed. Um, there was a case in 1970, uh, December, um, El Reno, Oklahoma. Um, it gave us the great name of the Abominable Chicken Man. There was this there was this anonymous farmer that uh, was um, sitting in his home uh at night when he heard his chickens squawking out in the, out in his coop um they sounded like they were being attacked so he grabbed his gun um went outside to go see what was going on and the light in the coop was on the door was ripped off and broken in half and uh there were just feathers everywhere but no birds he had about um he had about 100 ten chickens in there, and they were all gone. Um, what, what makes this weird, other than chickens disappearing, was that apparently, on the ground, there were these giant human-like footprints. And on the walls and the door, there were b- bloody handprints. Um, the farmer and then a uh, local newspaper uh, sent photos of these uh, prints to uh, Lawrence Curtis, who was the, at the time, the director of the Oklahoma city zoo. And they also actually shipped him the door from the uh, chicken coop, which I found interesting. Um, apparently he actually kept the door in his office uh, until he retired, which I just find quite amusing. Yeah. And, and uh, Curtis was unable to, to determine what made them. He said that they kind of looked like a cross between a bear and a human, um, but he wasn't sure. He said they were definitely... Uh, sorry, a gorilla and a human. Sorry. Uh, he said they were definitely not bear, and they but they were definitely primate. Um, And that was about as far as he was willing to go. Um, it was never really explained how, if this was a Bigfoot like people claim, it was never really explained how Bigfoot managed to steal 110 chickens within the span of a couple minutes. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of the case because it was uh, – the farmer was, very, was uh, anonymous, and there were not a lot of details given about um, the area and uh, s- certain things. So it might have happened. I think it did happen, but I don't – I'm not sure if it happened in the way that the newspaper said it happened, and unfortunately, uh, Curtis has passed on, as far as I can tell. So I have, I, I'm just not able to uh, get in contact with him, yeah, <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but it does kind of show that uh, the the high number of animals uh, that uh, that were purportedly killed or were missing uh, were. Was the weird factor there?
1: It's a peculiar case. When you talked about that in, in Kentucky, I thought that was, I, I it seemed like almost like fraud because like like that's a lot of chickens to go. So either the guys, Chicken the time, poacher, right, right, or or the the timeline's wrong or. Or, right. or it's, you know, he's covering up something. I don't, although I can't it's, imagine he had chicken insurance. I don't insurance,
0: know. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that
1: too.
2: It's <laughs> also one of those stories where, um, it's been written about quite a few times. Um, Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark wrote about it in their, uh, Creatures from the Outer Edge. John Keel wrote about it in his, um, uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, um, colin and janet board wrote about it um quite a few people have talked about this case but none of them expressed any kind of doubt that it happened and none of them gave any other possible explanations
0: yeah um i,
2: I don't think that the question of how did a bigfoot manage to get 110 chickens out of a chicken coop within probably five to ten minutes yeah
1: hey have, have you ever, have have, you ever uh, been around a chicken coop Yes. Yeah, I have two. I the very idea of, of trying to round up that many chickens at once as an animal seems absurd. <laughs> I mean, I, like you could get a, an, an animal, like if you could get a, get a dog, a really hungry dog, in a chicken coop, it could kill a lot of chickens really quick. But it can't get rid of them, right? And you and know, it, like even you know yeah, that's that's a little peculiar. Right. Chickens are really good at getting away. They. <laughs> they, they
0: uh, Yeah. It does sound like a mistake with the time frame. Yeah. Better. That's, that's
2: just on the surface of things, and um, that that's one of the reasons that uh, it's really hard to use just uh, newspapers, yes, for uh, these kind of reports because um, you know, a lot of these these newspapers are small town, uh, so the only reason they're talking about this stuff is because they know people will buy it and it's vaguely interesting, more interesting than uh, who married who last Saturday, um, so oftentimes they'll play up things Mm -hmm. like uh, they'll play up. Oh, it was a vampire or, um, and 110 chickens were just gone. Um, that type of thing. And, uh, it can be really hard to determine what was, I hate to say falsified, but what was played up, um, or emphasized for effect versus, um, what actually happened. And, uh, some details are just flat out left out. Like, um, certain, Uh, sometimes, uh, in some of the older newspaper stories, because I have things that go back to the 1870s, um, some of these stories, uh, in a lot of them, um, women, if they're married, they won't actually have their own name. It'll be Mrs. Then their husband's name. And it'd be really hard and really frustrating as a researcher, because I hate to just say that. Um, and, uh, also they'll, they'll, uh, call people by their nicknames and just by their nickname, sometimes uh, the last name won't even be given. So it can make it almost impossible to try to track down anybody.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's. Uh, and I, I was looking at a newspaper that hangs on the wall in one of my uh, favorite uh, restaurants in my hometown. And they had like a 10th anniversary uh, opening uh, special... It was just like an ad for the paper like for that for that restaurant that was ten years after it had opened, so this was i think nineteen fifty five and the restaurant opened in nineteen forty five and then on the same page, they had all these other local news stories. Uh, and I, for, some, for some reason, while I was waiting for my order, I, I just started reading the other news stories. And it was, it was funny like, what passed for news back then. So it was things like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, John Smith had a birthday party and his favorite kids arrived. And, you know, <laughs> it, was, and it was like, uh, you know, the Parkinson's are having a visitor from out of town and she's going to yes. be staying for a whole week. And I'm like, how is this news? How is this in the newspaper? And, exactly
0: yeah. When I was doing uh, research into the Silver Cliff Cemetery, um, I was looking at a newspaper from the nineteenth century, and it was called the Wet Mountain Tribute, and everything was just like that—really mundane stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and and then I think we've talked about briefly. Uh, it's not really one of our like regular episode topics, but the uh, the Great Airship Mystery, um, and then maybe like the Aurora yeah. Texas UFO Crash. The, those the, those newspapers at the time they seemed to mix. Fiction and reality just absolutely seamlessly with, and just assumed everybody who was reading it would know what was real and what's a tall tale. It was it mm-hmm. was a it was a different time, and I think there's been these like. um uh, this is a suspicion. I haven't actually done any formal research on this, but I, I suspect there's been rises and falls in the way that uh, uh, American journalism has, like, you know, press for accuracy and then it's dropped away and press for accuracy has dropped away. And as different editors come and go, I imagine there's pressure on that. But uh, I think we actually probably need to do an episode on on the sort of the the role of journalism because I feel like these Fordian topics and monster topics, they get... Short shrift, um, in general, I think, uh, unless human beings are killed, uh, in general, these stories are uh, given, like, here's a curiosity, here's a bit of news that we're never going to follow up on. You know, if you're a researcher 50 years from now, good luck with it, because we're giving you just enough to sell a newspaper— and we don't really care what the outcome is. And they do the same thing on the news now. We talk about it a lot where it's, you know, here's a spooky story. Here's a mysterious video. We're playing the X-Files music. And now we'll never know what it was, right? It just goes <laughs> out right at the end of the show. It's just, uh, that's mysterious. That's odd. And they always do this around Halloween, too, where they play up a lot of, uh, is it ghost? Is it
2: real? Yeah.
0: You it, decide. <laughs>
1: it's Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Oh, my gosh.
2: I I think... Um, what's really interesting about these type of attacks is um, even more so than just the general monster story, these can get people riled up and get people working together. And that actually allows the newspapers to be able to cover it more. um, Generally, Um, some of these cases it's, it's like a blow by blow daily um, thing. Even if there were no sightings or attacks for a week, they're still talking about who went out on an expedition looking for this creature. Um, and and who did what who freaked out about this and then they'll just rewrite all of the encounters and it's really interesting um because uh it's unique in the sense that there's no real no other real level of um constant reporting on these type of things but then uh once people get tired of it it'll just drop off and you'll never hear about it again Mm. um One of the other really interesting things about some of these cases is I'm not quite sure if it can be seen in other monster stories. But in some of these, I found that uh, the creatures kind of are used as a backdrop for other conversations in the town. Um, There was a uh, case. Oh, man, I can't remember. Uh, I think it was in Massachusetts in the 50s. And, uh, there was a whole bunch of cat sightings, um, and a handful of dogs were attacked. Um, but that wasn't as important to the newspapers as, uh, the, uh, factory workers that were quitting to hunt for the cat because they were, um, upset that the, uh, dump across the street was, um, smelling to high heaven because it was summer. Uh, so they decided to all quit their jobs temporarily and go and hunt for the cat until the uh, stench went away. And that was covered eight days in a row. Wow. <laughs> There's so many unique aspects to some of these stories. Um, there was another case in um, Granby, Connecticut in the 40s where the um state fish and wildlife director said that if anyone catches the panther, he would personally grill it and feed it to the first hundred people that show up to his house. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that, that case had a whole bunch of peculiarities. There were a bunch of teens that were out um, in one of the wild, local wildlife preserves that were um, making out. And uh, some of the boys had guns, um, and they were claiming that they were hunting for the uh, cat that was attacking um, sheep and rabbits in the area. And uh, they got arrested, and um, newspaper headlines said, uh, Granby Cat used as alibi for, um, oh, I, I think it was um, cr- uh, canoodling teens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> funny. And that's one of the. While there are a lot of flaws with, um, you know, some of the, the how these stories are portrayed in the media, you also get some of the interesting sass and um, commentary on other things in the town using these creatures as kind of the 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 way to get this discussion going. I think it's it's one of the more unique aspects of these things that you don't always see in other aspects of uh, Fordiana.
1: Well, I, I have to say I commend you for bothering to go back to the original resources <laughs> you know the the, the, the primary sources wherever you can um, mm-hmm. there's so Not many enough people do that well that's true and there's there's so many 40 researchers who are basically just clearing houses for these stories and they mm-hmm. don't really filter them or evaluate them or do any additional work and uh so I think you're on the right path here, you know, trying to get back to the primary sources, doing interviews if you can get in touch with actual witnesses, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So and mm-hmm. applying some critical thinking to these topics. Well, so what's your show like? I mean, if people wanted <laughs> to check it out, what what sort of things do you do? I was, I was I've only had a chance to listen to one episode and it was um, an interview with the guy who does Small Town Monsters. And I was enjoying that, but I didn't get to finish the whole thing before we got on here
2: tonight. Oh, yeah, that was a crazy episode. Did you get to the point with the raccoon?
1: yeah that's actually exactly where i stopped (laughs) he was like he was staying in a cabin in tennessee and a raccoon just showed up in the middle of the interview yeah yeah so that
2: that, that's one of the beauties of doing live radio um yeah (laughs) i so
1: (laughs) i surprised me well you can't trust him because you've got these little bandit masks on you know they're no good (laughs) so
2: so. (laughs) my producer actually um was on the call with us like always and uh she mutes herself to the broadcaster, but the entire time Seth was talking about the raccoon, she was going, watch out. It's rabies season. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, my, my radio show, um, The Crypto Kid, it's um, internet radio, which um, I think is getting bigger. I hope it does because I love doing live radio because I don't have to sit and edit because I've done that before. And I, I, I just like letting things be how they are. Um it gives me a bit more of an excuse if it's uh, lower audio quality. <laughs> sure, sure, but um, <laughs> but uh, the Crypto Kid started out as really kind of a way to um, have some of the top uh, researchers in the field, some of the um, real movers and shakers, and in the field of cryptozoology, as well as um, skeptics and um, witnesses and other people to come on the show and not really talk about cases or stories like a lot of um, places do, but to talk about ideas. Um, Yes, we do talk about cases on occasion, but we really do that with a focus of, um, now what do these cases mean? What can we kind of get from these? What are some of the explanations for some of these creatures? Um, what is the importance of mothman um that type of thing like that the the whole um cultural aspect and the uh the 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 ideas that don't quite get enough attention in the field anymore um I, I really try to focus on and I also try to make it approachable for um everyone um not just people that are big into the field um be, because I think that it can be really hard to find a good Uh, show that is consistent in quality that uh, is easy to approach that doesn't just tell stories all the time Um, and I have uh, I've been really working hard on trying to get some of the uh, biggest guests I can Um, I'm having Lyle Blackburn come on in a couple weeks to talk about um, some of the uh, ideas behind uh, the Southern Sasquatch Um, I'm having uh, Sharon Hill who I met at uh, cryptid uh, Cryptidcon with you blake um to come on and talk about her book Scientific american uh, americans and so i just i'm really focusing on some of the uh importance and uh you know what why these things matter and what are some of the ideas that these things that we can get from these things um as well as trying to be as um as uh objective as i can be because i think it's important and um honestly i don't know if any of these things exist um except for the thylacine um that's one of the few things that i will say i'm fairly confident exists but that's purely because um i love it and i really want it to exist and i haven't done a lot of like my own expeditions and stuff into it. I'm purely a fan when it comes to the thylacine. Oh, but I, I like, mean, we we
1: want it to exist too. It's a beautiful <laughs> right. animal. Yeah,
2: yeah, oh, incredible. But but uh, I try to stay as objective as I possibly can. I think that's something that not a lot of other shows do. So,
1: besides this work that you're doing with the CFC in in your book that you're working on, I guess I'm curious about what are you planning to do as far as like your education and career. where, where are you do you plan to keep this separate or are you going to try to find a job that works
2: together towards uh, like a common unified goal? Well, see, I know a lot of people um, try to make uh, their living in this field. And um, I respect those who figure it out because obviously they're doing what they love. And uh, I, I highly respect that. But I... I honestly wouldn't be happy just working in this field because I want to contribute not just to the field of cryptozoology and some of the more fringe topics, but I also want to contribute positively to science. Um, I I don't think I'd be happy just writing books on the weird and uh, doing research into the history of some of these things because I also have a drive to discover new animals and uh, work with animals and discover new things about animals. Um, So – Um, I'm looking in right now into what the best, uh, education decision would be for me and, um, some of the things I want to do, but right now it's looking like I'm either going to go into, um, wildlife conservation or, uh, zoology just as, um, an overall field. Um, I'd absolutely love to work with a zoo, um, or work at a, uh, you know, work, um, on a government level, working on, uh, trying to conserve some of the animals in these areas.
1: Well, I hope you're able to make that work out. That's, uh, it, you're young, you got you know plenty of time to figure all those things out, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, good luck with it. And, uh, and hopefully we'll get you some additional listeners. People can come check out your show. And when your book comes out, please let us know so we can help you promote it.
2: Definitely. Mm-hmm. I will. Um, I hope to have it the, the uh, second draft finished by January, and I'll be uh, shipping it around the publishers um, in February. Uh, so by this time next year, I hope it should be out and uh, people can buy it. Um, very impressive. Thank you. And if you need uh, help
1: with the, a pun uh, for the title or anything, <laughs> let me know. My pun consulting mm-hmm. business is is uh, is working I and mean, it's going, it's moving. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Um, uh. If your listeners are interested in following what I'm doing, uh, you can uh, they can find me on Facebook. I have a page that is just a uh, crypto hyphen kid. Um, My website is uh, paranorm101.blogspot.com and uh, my radio show is on every Monday night at 8pm Eastern Standard Time on uh, wcjvradio.com
1: And we'll put a link to all that in our show notes at monstertalk.org Excellent
2: Yeah, and we'll just
0: finish up with the usual question So Colin, what's your favorite monster?
2: (laughs) Well um, for the longest time my immediate answer would be Bigfoot Because uh, that's really one of the things that got me into this field. But now I think looking at monster under uh, the definition, uh, under the assumption that it's a cryptid, I think I would have to go with the Eastern Cougar. Because um, as I was looking into my book, uh, doing the research for it, I really fell in love with uh, big cats. And uh, living on the eastern side of the United States, uh, I I really, really want a uh, big cat or a um, large feline to still exist here. And um, I, I've been building a library on it, and it's a topic that I'm really passionate about, not just um, under the field of cryptozoology, but also wildlife conservation as a whole.
1: Well, you're mm, at that like age book. sorry, yeah, you're at that age now where you'll probably start running into a lot of Eastern cougars if you go to bars <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: Don't scare <them.
1: laughs> no, Colin, it was great talking with you, and thank you for coming oh, to Yes, Talk. I know we're very silly people, but I'll cut all that out, so <laughs> <laughs> I think you should leave it in <laughs> we'll we'll leave it yeah. some of it, so. Anyway, it th-
2: definitely it definitely was an honor to ha uh, to be on and um it uh definitely f- filled a goal of mine of being on a not just um cryptozoology shows but a skeptic show as well and um I'm just really really excited to uh have this come out
1: well, I think wow. it'll be out uh, I believe barring unforeseen obstacles it'll be out next <laughs> week so uh, i I'll, I'll send you a link when it's up and you can you know put a link out on your Facebook page. And I think this was a lot of fun. I I really... Oh, yeah. This is a great topic. I'm very impressed with your work, and uh, I look forward to seeing what becomes of you. So this is
0: cool. Yeah, I think you're going to do a lot. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Thank
1: you.
0: Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Karen
1: Stolzno. And I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. Today, you heard us talking with Colin Schneider, an investigator into matters bizarre and unusual, You can hear him on his radio shows Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern on wcjvradio.com. A link to his work will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Skeptic Magazine or of the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for everyone's support. you can now subscribe to skeptic magazine digitally just grab our free skeptic magazine app currently compatible with ios android pc mac kindle fire kindle fire hd and blackberry playbook head over to skeptic.com slash magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite skeptic content colin schneider's one of the youngest active 40 and cryptozoology. this is a new word to me cryptozoology i'll try that again is one of I do these a lot, you know. We're, we're this is like our 141st episode. I'm just getting the hang of it.